0: This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. North Korea goes big with Ghost Secret. Meanwhile, Pyongyang's Elite tries to cover its online tracks – PyroMine uses eternal romance to disable security systems en route to crypto mining. A complicated alt-coin heist may be misdirection for something bigger. Huawei may be in trouble over Iran's sanctions. Apple patches. Europol takes down web WebStressor. General Nakasone is confirmed as Director NSA and Commander U.S. Cybercom. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, April 25th, 2018. North Korea seems to be escalating a global data reconnaissance campaign. McAfee researchers are tracking Operation Ghost Secret, which they say is particularly interested in critical infrastructure, entertainment, finance, healthcare, and telecommunications. They attribute the operation to Pyongyang's Hidden Cobra Group. In other North Korean news, recorded future reports that the DPRK elite is going to ground, virtually speaking, exiting Western social media and online services in favor of Chinese alternatives, where they'll presumably be less accessible to hostile surveillance. It's not clear that Alibaba, Tencent and Baidu are really that much more obscure than, say, Amazon or Facebook, but Pyongyang's big shots are taking their trade elsewhere. They're also using more obfuscation services. Fortinet is tracking a Python-based Monero miner, they're calling it PyroMine, and they say it uses shadow broker-leaked equation group tool Eternal Romance to disable security systems en route to cryptojacking. Disabling security systems could also enable PyroMine's operators to stage further attacks. Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, reports Russian disinformation concerning Assad's nerve agent attacks against a civilian population. State-run media are using year-and-a-half-old footage from a movie shot in Syria to prove that the recent Sarin attack against civilians in Douma is a Western hoax. The film in question was a dramatization, not a hoax, of an earlier nerve agent attack against the rebel head town of Wuta in 2013. Many of the conversations on cybersecurity these days center on the notion of the humans being a weak link in the chain. The bad guys and gals rely on the fact that there's always a certain percentage of users that they can trick into performing some action that gives them access to what they want. Joe Cincada is managing director of Thinking Studio, where they've been working on implementing better design for better security.
1: At the most basic level, we think people act rationally, but they don't. However, they do act predictably, irrationally. And psychologists have been figuring out what these kind of hacks are for our psychology for for decades. Around 2000s, this guy called BJ Fogg started looking at it and seeing how you can actually design computer interfaces to change uh, people's behaviour and change what they think and what they do. And this research ended up being used in digital advertising. It ended up being used in... Social media platforms like Facebook, that's that is a fundamental part of them. And also, if you look at you know a lot of uh, like online gaming, it's all designed around these behavior patterns and how they can create addictive behavior patterns. But not all of those hacks are about addictive behavior patterns. In fact, some of them are, are just about facilitating good behavior change. What we saw is there's this huge gap in security, and when you think about it from a security standpoint, like Um, There's some ridiculous statistic going around like 98% of all security incidents are essentially caused by human error in some way, shape or form. So if you can change the way humans are interacting with software to mitigate some of that, you'll have a huge impact. Secure user experience design is about looking for these foundational design patterns that can leverage all that learning from psychology but apply it to just principles of user experience design to make people behave in a more prudent way when it comes to security
0: can you give us an example of uh, sort of the difference between an approach that would uh, that would be secure design versus
1: uh, what we've done traditionally a great example is one that you might have already seen which uh, google implemented on gmail Hmm. enterprise gmail so if you use uh, google apps for the enterprise You'll notice when you email someone who you've never emailed before, it gives you a little warning, especially if that person is outside the organization, it'll put a little message under the email address saying, hey, this person, you've never messaged this person and they're outside of your organization, just make sure this is what you really want to do. And that little yellow bar stands out. Yeah, against that white background that you're used to seeing on Gmail's interface. And what you're traditionally used to seeing is nothing. You're used to seeing just a 2, a CC and a BCC bar if you look at your standard Outlook or, you know, um, any, any email client that you'd be used to using. Um, so these changes can be quite subtle, but their impact can be enormous, right? And that, that Google, that Gmail example is, is a perfect example of the subtlety, but also the potential uh, benefit from that impact.
0: Now, it strikes me that um, particularly with security professionals, I think there's almost uh, a point of pride of uh, sitting down in front of the machine in front of a, a stark command line. Um, do you ever find yourself having uh, trouble uh, selling the idea of design to, uh, to folks who uh, you know, like to strip things down to their basics?
1: Well, yeah, it's a funny question that actually what we find is they're not normally our customer. Mm. um and that's i think that's part of the problem actually is when security folk are really thinking about this a lot of the time they're thinking about the tools they need to use to solve the problem right they're thinking either you know some might be thinking about perimeter security they might be thinking about um infrastructure layer uh, they might be thinking about you know user training and education that way but the conversations we're having normally are with product owners those guys instead have the opposite problem. They don't necessarily understand the impact or the implication of these security issues until it's too late. So we don't, I suppose, have the representation of these security folk in those conversations, right? Mm -hmm. That's the problem. Uh, And that's why we still have the problem that we have. The guys that are out there designing software are not the guys that are out there protecting the organisation a lot of the time, and we need to bring those two much closer together together so that we instead have security, um, I suppose, think of it like the secure development lifecycle should include user experience design as much as it includes OWASP and all the other things that we've got for the software engineering team. I think that's the place that we're getting now where we're looking and saying, actually, you know what, just because it looks pretty doesn't mean it solves the problem. And uh, in fact, you have to bring secure coding standards up to secure design standards.
0: That's Joe Chinkata from Thinking Studio. A complex hijacking of cloud service IP addresses in Chicago raises concerns about not only the immediate crime, theft of about $150,000 in cryptocurrency by spoofing my ether wallet, but of a more serious intrusion by Russian actors who may be staging an attack on commodity trading platforms or other financial infrastructure. The incident happened yesterday morning and lasted for about two hours – it involved around 1,300 IP addresses on Route 53, which is Amazon's domain name service. Amazon wasn't itself hacked. As the company said, quote, An upstream Internet service provider was compromised by a malicious actor, who then used that provider to announce a subset of Route 53 IP addresses to other networks with whom this ISP was peered. These peered networks, unaware of the issue accepted these announcements and incorrectly directed a small percentage of traffic for a single customer's domain to the malicious copy of that domain." Quote. The upstream provider in question is reported by Ars Technica to be ENet, a large Ohio-based internet provider. The reason the incident has prompted concern about Russian staging is that the MyEther wallet was redirected to a Russian server via a man-in-the-middle attack at a Chicago server. That server belonged to an Equinix customer and was located at the Equinix IBX facility – that's International Business Exchange – on eastern Surmac. The server's location aroused concerns that the connection between the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and the New York Stock Exchange may be susceptible to compromise. $150,000 may be a lot to you or me, but to the attackers it looks like chump change. Their wallet already seemed to hold around $17 million in altcoin, and that too is grounds for concern that something else may be afoot. Huawei has joined ZTE in U.S. crosshairs over sanctions violations. The U.S. Department of Justice is investigating whether the Chinese device manufacturer violated U.S. sanctions against Iran. Apple has patched macOS, iOS, and Safari. As always, it pays to keep your systems up to date. Bravo Europol, with its partners, the International Police Agency has taken down a major internet irritant. They've seized the infrastructure of Webstresser, a notorious denial-of-service-for-hire shop. Six alleged members of the Webstresser gang are under arrest. The criminals operated under the fig leaf of a stressor business one might hire to test one's defenses. But no, they were in fact selling DDoS to skid criminals. U.S. District Judge Vince Chabria has delayed sentencing in the case of Yahoo hacker Karim Baratov. His honor wants more information on Baratov's connection with Russia's FSB. He'd like to see more on Baratov's involvement with the conspiracy. Such involvement might justify the prosecution's request for the unusually long eight-year sentence. And finally, the Wall Street Journal, announcing this morning that Lieutenant General Paul Nakasone was to be confirmed as both Director NSA and Commander U.S. Cyber Command, said the Senate has approved his dual hat, D-U-E-L. We thought at first that this was a typo that they meant dual hat, D-U-A-L, as in the two of them, but maybe that's wrong. It could be a showdown, with Nakasone asking the GRU's Igor Korobov to smile when he hacks that before they slap virtual leather. Well, hey, we can dream, right? At any rate, congratulations General Nakasone, and good hunting. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Daniel Prince. He's a senior lecturer in cybersecurity at Lancaster University. Daniel, welcome back. Um, We wanted to talk about cybersecurity in the financial services sector. Uh, You have some thoughts here. What can you share with us today?
2: So I think one of the really interesting things about the financial services sector is that it's almost like one of the misunderrepresented critical national infrastructures uh, globally. Um, And we've seen a number of significant attacks against uh, those infrastructures. Fortunately, though, um, operationally, financial services has a very strong response to cybersecurity attacks, and uh, that is in part due to significant regulation around uh, operational resilience and operational risk. But increasingly, as we know, the financial services sector is becoming... Digitised. There are a number of new approaches, uh, new, new startups selling slightly different variants on financial services that consumers can uh, get apps for on their mobile phones or enable them to uh, develop new approaches to managing their finances. And then now the new regulations that have come out to open up the banking sector add a new dimension for that. And that brings out a, a, a much wider uh, economy for uh, new startups and new businesses to develop so my specific concern is that uh, or interest here is that the financial services operate on the concept of trust and confidence we have to trust that the banks are going to be able to do re- the right thing and we have to have confidence in them that they know what they're they're doing mm. and but we've seen from cybersecurity that nothing erodes trust and confidence quite as quickly as having a failing digital service so it's that challenge between an increasingly digitized financial services sector uh, that operates fundamentally on trust and confidence against this idea that digital uh, systems can quickly and rapidly erode trust and confidence. And how do we manage that conflict?
0: Yeah, and it seems to me like there's a disproportionality there where I guess it's almost a cliche that you know things can go wrong very quickly uh, in the cyber realm.
2: Yeah, and that that's one of the the slightly more concerning things. So, if you look at the uh, sort of the, the, the recent financial crashes, um, what we saw there was the fact that within the financial services sector, we were building up considerable amounts of financial risk in these commodities that, that were being sold around um, uh, mortgages or, 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 or bad mortgages and bad debts, mm. and it only took one. Or two little things to happen, and it cascaded and, and, and cre- created a global failure. Um, and now, what happens uh, when we set up systems that uh, start to take people out of the loop even more? So, for example, imagine we, we've already got, um, you know, computational trading algorithms sitting there looking at uh, the stock market and doing things. But imagine that then combined with smart contracts, which are designed to start to sell. Uh, physical commodities based on interactions within the digital realm. What I I am concerned about is the accumulation of this hidden risk within the financial services sector, where one thing will happen that could cause a cascading failure across several systems, um, not, not necessarily a failure, but cascading actions across several systems, which doesn't then have humans in the loop to be able to Protect that uh, from from happening and, and causing a significant global global failure. Don't want to be too do- doom and gloom about it, but that's uh, that's <laughs> you know, one of the, the, yeah. the things that that keeps me awake at night.
0: Well, it's sort of I, I suppose is, is it fair to say it's sort of that unknown unknown that systems are being put in place and, and no one's a hundred percent sure how those cascading effects might kick in.
2: Yeah, certainly. So you know, if I'm writing a smart contract on a distributed ledger system of your choice, um, then you know I don't know what other potentially smart contracts that that will be out there that might be affected by that, particularly if, say, my smart contract is triggered based on some action in the real world and the output of another smart contract is to trigger that action in the real world. It could be very difficult in terms of the complexity to add all these things up. And then the other thing is to think about is that smart contracts and their evolution will make it much easier for individuals to be able to create these kind of automated trades and sales of commodity items or, or any other any other money based system you, that you want and therefore nobody's really going to ha- be able to have that big overall picture and whereas now to create a contract for something is actually quite a lot of effort there's a lot of cost involved you have to get lawyers involved and so they tend to be very large tangible things that you will put that effort into mm. but what happens when you can create smart contracts for Selling items for two or three dollars or pounds. You know, you've got this really complex interplay between all these things that can potentially um, cause a lot of problems because we just don't understand how they're all interconnected.
0: Daniel Prince, thanks for joining us. And that's the Cyberwire.